Democrats of whatever persuasion, wherever on our planet they live, need to pay attention to the way democracy is destroyed or destroys itself. The indigenous peoples of my native South Australia, they still understand today. They are themselves part of the earth. They are required, they're obliged to exercise self-restraint. And democracy has a bad track record of encouraging people to destroy that earth, to mine it, extract resources. Everything has a price attached to it. Welcome to Kokorin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors of cultural journals from throughout Europe, and today especially, well beyond. Eurozine is an online magazine and a network of 90 partners, journals, magazines and associates from Belgium to Belarus, from Norway to Bulgaria, bringing diverse voices to a joint conversation. I am Editor-in-Chief Rika Kinga-Pop, and today I'm talking with our recurring author, the media sociologist John Keane. He joins me from his home in Melbourne, Australia, to discuss his keynote article in Eurozine's latest focal point, Writing on the Wall. Do find links in the show notes. This podcast episode also has an extended version, with bonus material available only to our patrons. You can become a patron by pledging as little as five euros a month or more for even more giveaways and exclusive content on Patreon at patreon.com slash Eurozine. Eurozine has been offering quality journalism for free for over two decades and now we need our readers and listeners help to muddle through a very tough time in culture and publishing. Thank you and let's get into it. Very welcome and thanks for taking the time a couple hours apart. That is Central European time and you are Sydney time, right? Yes, Rika, I'm delighted to be with you. It's almost the end of the day here and it's morning for you. It's a great tragedy that our planet is not flat. <laughs> But it is great fortune that we do end up talking with each other, which we had planned for a long time. Since the very beginning of the pandemic, when I first published an article of yours in Eurozine, and you have been a frequent author of ours ever since, which is cause for my great happiness. But now we get to talk, and this is quite the occasion, because now Eurozine has a full focal point, more or less centered around your conversation-inspiring piece, which I would like to address today specifically about how democracies die and also about how they survive. The challenges we should be more concerned about, maybe, than the ones on the surface. And I'm much looking forward to talking through the various contributions. I think it's so far been an extraordinary series. It's a very rich series. It's packed with insights, many of them fresh for me. Indeed, we will get to those, but just to be on the safe side, we should mention that we are talking about the focal point called the writing on the wall. This is a direct quote from the first sentence of your programmatic piece, How Democracies Die Fast and Slow, and the listeners will find the link to the article in the show notes, of course. Let's talk about exactly how you analyze the death of democracies and you start by pointing out that the very popular currently mainstream series of sudden death of democracies, of gradual demise, institutional demise, and of the rise of populist leaders are just some ways. And there's other very important aspects how established democracies can erode and lose their grip. Yes. So let's talk about what you call indignation or erosion of democracy through the deprivation of people. And of course, our favorite topic, ecocide. How do you see these two factors erode democracy, which in mainstream discussions is often viewed as more an institutional phenomenon than a social phenomenon? You're right, Rika, that... In the literature and the wider public discussion about democratic backsliding, the collapse of democracy, uh, phrases like that becoming commonplace. There is a kind of fashion to talk in various parts 
of our world about the decline, degradation, the end of democracy. And as you've already hinted, the commonplace approach is to think of democracy as a set of governing institutions. And of course it is. It comprises parliaments and executive rule and it, democracies, by definition, always include a civil service, include a judiciary, election mechanisms, political parties, for instance. But that is a bias, really, or so I tried to say in my piece, that when thinking about how democracies die, we should not concentrate exclusively on governing institutions, which is, if you think about it of late, this is the way that the January 6th events in the United States have been widely discussed. You know, there was an assault on the American equivalent of a parliament, and it was said that the whole democratic system was under siege. What I tried to do in my piece is to make the case for thinking about democracy as a whole way of life. It's a very old-fashioned idea that enjoyed great credibility from roughly the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and certainly during the so-called Keynesian welfare state period. So I make a case for thinking about democracy as a whole way of life. It is an everyday matter. The way that employers treat their workers, the way parents treat their children, the way men speak to women, these are matters that are of central importance to the spirit of democracy. Very unorthodox, I would say, unpopular if you're not so charitable, is the linked point in my piece about the dangers of ecocide. It's now a word that the European Parliament has put on the political agenda. What I try to say is that democracy is, of course, a set of governing institutions, a judiciary that's independent of the executive, that there is a functioning parliament, that there is a professional bureaucracy that shouldn't be politicised, that there is a media ecosystem that enables opinions to be freely circulated, and it is, of course, free and fair elections and a multi-party system. But it's much more than that. It is also a way of life. Every democracy has social foundations. Healthy democracies have a civil society base in which people from various walks of life intermingle, are entangled, they do so non-violently, they accept the difference of others. A civil society where there are free trade unions and there is investigative journalism, there are religious associations, civil networks, all digitally mediated. But democracy also is a way of life, a set of governing institutions, plus elections, that is grounded in the environments on our planet. And this last point should be really obvious. It is becoming clearer to many millions of people globally. But in writings on democracy, it's a point that typically gets airbrushed. It's greeted with silence. There is no consideration of that point. So this piece was an attempt to bring these two themes, the social foundations of a democracy and the ecological preconditions of democracy to bring them together and to say that democracy as a way of life, as a spirit, as a set of institutions can slowly commit democide if the social foundations of any given democracy are neglected and if the biomes in which people dwell are gradually destroyed. Indeed, it does remind me very much of the sometimes surprisingly huge developments in archaeology. We find that Climatic change and significant environmental degradation has played such a large part in civilizational collapses before collapses that traditionally were explained by, you know, some ruler messing something up or some kind of warfare. And over time, it turns out that basically a whole empire was oversalinated. These sorts of aspects, which do bring our whole view of history into a different light. We're not talking about history. We're talking about the present moment right now and the close future. 
and you've been inserting the ecological principle in your writing into this political framework for a while now. My impression as an editor who works with the texts of social scientists and political analysts or political thinkers is that ecology seems to be an issue on its own in most heads, sort of separate to the conventional considerations of political analysis or inquiry. So there's politics, and yet there's this external sort of foreign body, the issue of ecology, which we now talk about because it has come to the surface on so many levels, but it is not integrated. And what you do here is that you integrate this with the rest of the problem sets and you talk about the prerequisites the democratically functioning society where a healthy ecosystem as an environment is the first prerequisite of a functional society. Is that right? Yes. There's a scandalous notion that runs through my piece. I say this ironically in that I accuse the very idea and the ideal of democracy as the carrier of anthropocentrism. And I go further and I say that democracy, if it roughly means the self-government of a people who live on planet Earth, where they decide who gets how much, when and how, and they do so collectively, and they follow rules like the majority principle, that democracy in this roughly defined sense is the most anthropocentric political ideal known to humanity. We could talk at some length about how, for example, indigenous peoples of my native Australia regarded themselves in relation to the biomes in which they dwelled, and and we could talk about how they governed themselves. Their presumption was not that they as people were separated from so-called nature and that they were superior to that nature. In every known political form other than democracy, there is some built-in limit on what humans, as humans, see themselves as legitimately able to do in relation to the biosphere. Early European monarchies are political systems where a God-given monarch rules over a realm. And the monarch typically allows certain common lands. There are certain restrictions on what can be exploited in terms of agricultural land and animals and so on. Democracy, in a way, dispenses with all of those limits upon our domination of what came to be called nature by placing humans, the people, at the centre of the ideal form of government. So what I suggest in my piece is that this thoroughly anthropocentric political ideal called democracy, the most anthropocentric that humans have ever imagined, needs itself to be democratized. This is an unorthodox thought. It's perhaps for some listeners and readers of the piece. It's a kind of crazy idea. But what I see going on in my lifetime is a transformation of the spirit, the meaning, and even the institutions of democracy under pressure from environmental catastrophes and, you know, slow motion, species destruction, the warming of our planet's atmosphere, etc. What's going on is a redefinition, as it were, behind the backs of political thinkers of democracy. What's going on is a redefinition of democracy to mean self-government of people through their chosen or appointed representatives on Earth, in which the biomes in which they dwell are represented in their own affairs. This is evident not only in the birth during the past half century of Green Parties, but the proliferation of all kinds of new institutions that never existed before in the history of democracy. Coral reef monitoring networks, 
rebellions such as Extinction Rebellion in the United Kingdom. All kinds of cases of climate litigation where a group or a network of organizations takes a corporation or a state to court. And as well, the proliferation of cross-border, regional and global mechanisms, such as the Kunming Montreal Agreement in late 2022 on biodiversity, where global institutions are now in the business of addressing the problem of our destruction of our biosphere. This is all very strange to traditional democratic thinking and democratic politics. Uh, there's a, an enormous struggle going on in practically every actually existing democracy to effect this kind of change, a change in which not simply sentient animals, but also whole ecosystems are, are recognized as part of what it means to be human, in which humans have an obligation to protect those biomes and to see themselves in more humble ways, on more equal terms, so to say, with those biomes in which they dwell and on which they deeply depend. So in my thinking, to put it very simply, the equality principle, which is so central, it's the distinctive quality of democracy as a political form, that people are equal, can be actually extended to include our biosphere so that we come to see ourselves as entangled with that biosphere, that that dualism is not clear-cut at all, and where we develop patterns of respect for and obligations to that biosphere, a kind of equalization of our relationship with that biosphere. Well, this is the debate in the series that we're talking about with Rafi Ewitt from the New School. Indeed. Rafi Ewitt mentions and cites other examples where this extension of, let's say, legal subjectivity, he says that this is an extension of anthropocentrism and suggests that instead of expanding this notion of humanity, which is actually more fluid than many of us would wish for it to be, in that it is very possible for it to exclude many, many humans from the concept of humanity every now and then, as we've seen with genocides and apartheid and uh, other forms of violent exclusion. Rafi Yuat suggests that instead this requires a whole different relationship in which not the fact that something is considered a human subject is the ground of considering it. But my impression reading this article and comparing it to your argument is that this, to me, when it comes to realization, feels like the fine-tuning of a very similar attitude. Yes, I thank Rafi Uet for his remarks. I got off the hook, I think, rather easily because I mentioned, I think, only in the opening paragraph or two, and then I disappear. And I'm very grateful for his generosity. I would say, however, that I think he's doing exactly in this piece what he cautions against. Let me explain. He agrees that this problem of anthropocentrism is seriously worrying when it comes to thinking about politics. He's absolutely right about that. And he points out that this anthropocentrism has a hydra-headed quality to it. For example, there are agreements like the Convention on Biological Diversity, where states granted the sovereign right to decide how their people treat so-called nature. That's one understanding of anthropocentrism, he points out. He also points out that there is a wider more universal understanding of anthropocentrism, which is the primacy of the human, you know, to the extent that we talk about the human, this and that, and we presume that the human is separated from so-called nature, that there is a wall between us, and that we are masters and possessors, kings and queens in that relationship. That's another understanding of anthropocentrism. The biblical approach, kind of, right? Like this world was presented to humans. That's kind of a, a very conventional, very ancient approach. 
the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof is the inscription that my great-great-grandfather put over a fruit and vegetable market, which he founded in the 19th century. I'm with Rafi Ewitt on this, and he agrees that democracy is indeed an agent of, a carrier of, it is infected with anthropocentrism. It presumes the primacy of humans against the non-human. He then says, and here I begin to have problems, he then says, green thinkers, when it comes to democracy during the last several decades, green thinkers have tried to solve this problem by talking about a green state. This is Robin Eckersley, who is a friend and colleague down here near Antarctica. And he rightly points out that this is not enough, that it supposes the primacy of sovereign territorial states. It supposes that those states can green themselves alone, so to say, in cooperation perhaps with other states. But this is not enough, and I very much agree with him. He then tries to say that what we need is a new understanding of politics, he cites Hannah Arendt's famous notion of the political as lived communication with others, nonviolent communication of speech and interaction with others. Politics is synonymous with public life. And he says the problem with this conception is that it rests upon presumptions of ecological anthropocentrism. He's right. So what we need is a new conception of politics. And he tries to say that this new conception of politics requires a new political imagination. It means that we should get rid of existing liberal democratic practices. We should abandon talk of rights and representation and interests. And the way forward is a politics of, well, he calls it interspecies politics, so that politics comes to mean an unending process with our environment rather than a politics of the environment. My reaction to this is that, first of all, you know, the concept of politics that he is using is thoroughly human. It has a history. There's no escaping the point, it's very elementary, that when we humans in public as journalists, writers, teachers, as citizens, when we engage in elections, when we speak about our environment, we're using human categories. What I want to say in this piece, it's very briefly put, I've tried to write about it at length elsewhere. What I tried to say is that we humans have a bad habit when it comes to green politics of not speaking about representation. And I mean by that, that we have this tendency to live in denial to forget when we talk, as I'm talking about our biosphere, I am using language to represent this biosphere in which we all dwell. To put it more simply and in other words, every attempt to address the problem of the destruction of our biosphere, it's increasingly a serious problem. It may all end very unhappily. We don't yet know. But when we're talking about our biosphere, we're using words, we're using signifiers, we're using phrases, we're using catchwords. These are representations of the biosphere. What I think is that democracy can be democratized. It is being democratized. There's a reimagining of democracy going on in which there is a certain right of representation of forests, of rivers, of animals, of whole biomes, of our whole earthly biosphere. There's a struggle over representation of our biosphere that's going on. And therefore, one way of speaking positively about democracy is that democracy is a particular type of polity where this representation of our biosphere is encouraged, in which there is a plurality of understandings of what our relationship is with nature, and in which, above all, this right of representation of our biosphere is linked to the need to stop destroying it. I think that Rafi Ewart too easily goes silent on that, 
I do not think that it's possible to escape from human-centered representations of species and biomes and so on. When he finally says that what's needed is a revised conception of the human, well, that's exactly what I've been arguing for for some time now. He calls for a new geopolitics, yes, but it seems to me that that already is implicit and explicit in what I tried to say in the small piece. Rafi, you had article by the title Anthropocentrism and Democracy in Planetary Times, a response to John Keane will also be linked in the show notes, so everybody can take a look for themselves at this aspect of the debate. But listening to you as well as reading these articles, I can't help but feel or find that in the background of what we talk about regarding concepts of democracy, the defining notion, in defining notion that you are trying to depart from, is a very Western-centric, or I should say Eurocentric, as in Europe and its colonial projects, and a very extraction and conquest-based approach to modernity is the backdrop to this notion. And the terror with which we tend to view climate change, global warming, global heating is always against the backdrop of the large-scale tragedy of most of Western Europe's civilizational collapse at the end of the Roman Empire, which in some places, for instance, today's Britain, did actually result in a civilizational collapse in which hundreds of years of culture and technology was backtracked from one moment to another within the span of a couple of years. So this terror, at least in European and Eurocentric Western thinking, to me, it seems is an organizing idea of how we can't lose advancement, however we conceptualize that. This is, of course, a warning in a very great book by the Hungarian political economist and historian Karl Polanyi, a book that was originally entitled The Great Transformation, published in 1944, reissued in 1945, in which Karl Polanyi, concentrating on the European zone, writes a new history of process that's very familiar to us, as if there's been a repetition a process, which he calls the Great Transformation, in which, on an unprecedented scale, life in early modern capitalistic state-organized societies, life came to succumb by force, often with great violence, with some seduction, came to succumb to the process of commodification, that children enter factories, that the old rural ways of being in the world are destroyed. Everything has a price attached to it. Profit, risk-taking, the money principle come to spread through the whole of life. And Polanyi points out in this classic book that this process of the commodification of human beings in their everyday lives, in institutions, also extends to the commodification of our relationship with so-called nature, and that nature, he points out, was radically transformed. Karl Marx agreed with this, radically transformed, and that transformation had deeply destructive effects. I think that theme is worth picking up on. We've been through four decades of what has come to be called neoliberalism, where, you know, whose core features are the privatization, the marketization of daily life, the commodification of information, the commodification of entertainment, etc., etc. And what Polanyi warned is that no society could indefinitely endure the commodification of human beings and the simultaneous commodification of the nature in which they dwelled. That's our theme. 
And one can say that our global situation is much worse than Polanyi imagined. And you are right. It is a large-scale tragedy that is unfolding. It is producing fear, anxiety among millions of people. It's the tyranny of the unknown. The tyranny of the disruption that is going on is undoubtedly having all sorts of political consequences. What I try to say in my piece is that if one looks at these environmental tragedies that are accumulating and whose velocity is increasing, then you see it's the end point of the essay. You see that this process, this ecological degradation, is slowly eating into, it's slowly destroying the spirit of equality, of decency, of openness, etc., etc., on which democracy thrives. So that, for instance, when there is a local flood catastrophe, or when there are bushfires, uh, whole populations are subject to a form of emergency, emergency rule comes to be normalized. There is as well the fact that these catastrophes induce whole societies to act according to the sauve-keeper principle. You know, each for themselves. The rich can take care of themselves. As Brunel Latour used to say, they draw up the bridges, they bid adieu to the rest of society. They're in care and millions of people are left to suffer under these conditions. So the equality mm -hmm. principle of, of democracy is destroyed by these. Our great problem is to find ways of reversing this process. I believe that they have started. Whether they will succeed, well, we can discuss more extensively. I think this is a very strong defining characteristic of all of these systems that you're criticizing, that the building blocks, the cornerstones, the most crucial circumstances for survival, be they like gendered human effort, the mother's work in parenting, be they related to, say, agricultural production or domestic labor or teaching or any kind of these like completely pervasive and very necessary services, not in the industrial sense, but that service survival and a society survival, they are the very bottom of the food pyramid when we talk about stature in society. They are viewed very lowly, basically. That's all I'm trying to say. I do have a hard time explaining to my children every now and then why teachers are so incredibly poorly paid, especially after two years of more or less continuous homeschooling why the people who sweep the streets and collect our trash are considered lowly, whereas our entire life depends on them doing this work for us and doing this service for us. And from a certain perspective, it becomes very apparent that it is an acquired attitude. It's a culturally coded approach to not be considerate of the very prerequisites of your life. Yes, and it's for this reason, Rika, that the small contribution that I made ends on the theme of self-limitation, self-restriction in the exercise of human power, power in relation to other humans and power in relation to the biomes in which we dwell. Running through my piece and in my attempt to reimagine and rethink with practical implications the very idea of democracy is the notion that there is a kind of unfinished punk quality to democracy. So democracy has a history of contesting tree power. It has done so since it was first named in the Greek city-states of the 4th and century BCE, for instance where the idea was that, you know, people could get rid of tyrants and autocrats and aristocrats. They did not need monarchs, that the powerful could be restricted. What I tried to do in this piece is to say that that process of limiting abusive predatory power, that process of limiting arbitrary power, as jurisprudence people call it, 
can also be extended to our relationship with the biomes in which we dwell. This is an elementary point that, for example, the indigenous peoples of my native South Australia understood historically before colonization, they still understand today. They are themselves part of the earth. They are required, they're obliged to exercise self-restraint. They do not think of themselves as somehow separate from the earth. They are part of the earth. Well, something like in every actually existing democracy, I don't know whether this will succeed, but something like a recognition of this old point has been born and is being diffused among generations and through all classes. You know, there is this awareness that actually we can behave as if we're tyrants on earth and democracy has a bad track record of encouraging people, political classes, parties and so on to act as tyrants on our earth with full license to destroy that earth, to mine it, extract resources, cut down trees. Read Tocqueville's letters from the United States when he was in the United States in the early 1830s. He is very struck by the way that the American democracy constantly chops down, Democrats chop down trees. There is a complete transformation of land by agriculture, by industrialized agriculture and so on. He doesn't raise an eyebrow against that. He thinks that's, he's just describing what democracies do. So democracies have this bad track record. If there's any future for democracy, or so I say in this piece, it's that this principle of the self-limitation, the self-restriction of predatory bossing and bullying also has to extend to our relationship with the biosphere. Indeed, Alexis de Tocqueville, when he talks about this, this is just past, or maybe a little bit more than just past, the time period when gardens and parks and an inquiry into nature was on the minds of people in high culture. So this is a very big turn in modernism towards more domination, extraction, human intervention, and I think it really shows, but this is an overarching theme across this time. Now, your notion of democracy, to put it very bluntly, it's an evolved notion of democracy. You argue for it to include the cultural aspects, the social and everyday aspects of how democracy is realized between humans. And this is why phrases like tenderness and self-restraint are so much highlighted. James Miller of the New School criticizes you for it in his article titled Bloodless Democracy, but I would like to not get into it in much detail because you have already responded to it and people can read it. There is another criticism which you have found very enlightening, and that is by Ferenc Lotzel historian of the Maastricht University and also my fellow Hungarian. Not that it's so important about the theory itself. I liked very much Ferenc Otso's piece. I think it was highly thoughtful. I learned lots from it. It's an instance of the way this series, I think, has generated new insights. And I would say modestly that anybody reading through this series is not only going to learn a lot, but I think the way they think about the world and about democracy are likely to be upended, challenged. Possibly they'll change their minds, and that's a very good thing. That's the best possible outcome, also from the viewpoint of the editor. But let's talk just a little bit about Lotso's address to you, where sort of the core point is that the ways democracies can die, that you analyze, you collect them in five points. Lotso says that these can be part of the same process. These tend to feed into each other. They are not quite so separate or distinct ways. They are more stations or combined processes. What do you think about this? Yes. Well, I should say that just in a short couple of sentences, I warn readers that I'm not preoccupied with morbidity. 
this piece is not a sort of an aesthetics of the death of democracy and the different ways in which the spirit and substance of democracy meets its end. My whole point is to say that small d Democrats of whatever persuasion, Muslims, Christians, Green, liberals, socialists, and so on, wherever on our planet they live, need to pay attention, counterfactually speaking, to the way democracy is destroyed and or destroys itself. John, I have to take issue with what you just said, because reading this piece through as a deaf enthusiast myself, it does strike me that you're preoccupied with morbidity, but not the death of democracy so much as just the finite nature of life and how that defines our relationship. So there is a lot of attention paid to death in what you write, but it is paid to the death of humans and animals and plants and ecosystems. And that is, I think, a cornerstone of the situation that we're facing, both ecologically and socially. The breakdown of social systems is not tragic because my mother said that social systems are supposed to look like this. They are tragic because they have tragic consequences for those we hold dear, be they humans or trees. Is that a misunderstanding? I think that you are right that, as Hegel said, the hour of our birth is the hour of our death. Morbidity is inside. It's imminent within the human condition. We don't live forever, nor do species and other processes stay the same in the biomes in which we dwell. That's undoubtedly the case, but I would rather not be thought of as Dr. Death. Uh, my aim in this piece is to highlight these five entangled ways in which democracies are destroyed in order that small d Democrats of one persuasion or another can better recognize. You call it an early warning system. Yes, but I think that Ferenc Lotso is correct in pointing out that in this piece, there is a kind of typology thinking at work, you know, where I say, well, at one end of the spectrum, there is the sudden death view of democracy, a military coup d'etat, or the outbreak of uh, fighting between two factions of armed forces, as in Sudan. You know, this is one way that democracy can be destroyed. At the other extreme, in slow motion form, you know, ecocide can also have ultimately ruinous effects on democracy. And Lotso points out that in any actually existing case, he mentions Weimar Germany, he mentions Orban's Hungary, these five processes are interrelated. And he makes a very good point, drawing on Fenog. Uh, Brodel, the great French historian, history comprises processes with various rhythms and various velocities, from the longue durée, as Brodel called it, to the ephemeral, very surface, fleeting events. I think Ferenc Lotso is correct about this. I didn't mean to say that these are discrete processes with, so to say, a wall between them in any actually existing case of democide, they clearly uh, feed upon one another. What I was trying to do to put things a bit differently was to say, we're aware that high-level governing institutions can be destroyed by anti-democrats. And yet, we need also to include in our understanding of these processes, as in Mexico, when 40% of the population the citizens of that country are living below the poverty line, where children go to bed hungry at night. This is destructive of democracy, and it's certainly bound up with rotten governing institutions. But this can also happen through the degradation of the biomes in which those citizens dwell. But he has a point, he makes it very clearly, and I thank him for that. It is also important to emphasize that so to say, external explanations or factors, which are, as you point out, not at all external, as in ecology or social circumstances, living standards, just the general hardship of life. They don't account 
for every case when democracy does or doesn't degrade, because in certain cases, people stop the degradation of democracy in its tracks early on, and in others, they don't. And it's very dependent on culture, political culture, I think, and and the factors of human interactions within, which Lotso also points out, these are not confined to national circumstances. I think it's less a critic of yours, because you never state that this is country by country, more a critic of the general public discourse, which really tends to view countries as completely or more or less isolated units. My work has for several decades tried strongly to criticize the territorial mentality that grips so much thinking and so much of the politics of democracy. This constant reference to the state and to borders, to countries as if those countries uh, aren't entangled. And I've even made the case for applying some quantum thinking to democracy in which we come to see democracy, self-government of the people through chosen, appointed, trusted representatives with representation of the biosphere. Democracy understood in this way is never confined to territorial states. Its spirit crosses border. It has a certain fugitive quality, as Sheldon Wald famously put it, And we're aware that increasingly what happens in one country affects life in another. The banking crisis of 2008 and 2009 is an obvious case in point. And it helps explain why historically democracies in a territorial sense typically came in clusters because the protection of democracy across borders was a precondition of the flourishing of democracy locally. Yes, it's the case that Ferenc makes this point, but it doesn't apply to me. I rest my case. Yeah, I think it's uh, on the mind of many Hungarians who try to think outside of our context, which seems to be closed airtight, like a Tupperware with a lid on. And in our experience, viewing the political conundrum that many of us are caught in or our country is caught in is not doing as much of a service. But I will ask him in the following podcast episode about this, whether this is specifically his home country or something else that puts it on his mind. I would also make a case if I had a chance to talk with him about empires and democracy, because I've just finished a book that's coming out in the northern autumn on China. It tries to say that what this rise of China is the emergence of a new empire of a kind that we've never seen before. And when one begins to look through the history of empires, examine them more carefully, how they worked, you know, one sees that there have been so far three democratic empires in the history of democracy. One was classical Athens. It was the most powerful democracy. It was an empire with a big standing army and a second to none naval force. It was, as we know, militarily killed off by the Macedonians. The second was the case of revolutionary France, which morphed into Napoleon, which took the spirit of the droit de l'homme et du citoyen to extend it through Europe, and it was militarily defeated. The third and the first ever global empire that claims to be a democracy is the United States. And one of the big questions of our time is whether this empire is in decline. We could have a long discussion about that. We could, for instance, discuss why it is that it shows a bad habit of going to war constantly, of spending in 2023 as much on weaponry as the next 10 countries combined. Declining empires, including democratic empires, fight back. And they do so through violent means. The British Empire tried to hold its ground well into the 1950s. And so, for example, in Kenya, one and a half million Kenyans were locked up in concentration camps during the Mau Mau uprising. It was an example of how a parliamentary democratic empire in decline tried to stave off its defeat. I'm very interested in the question of whether this American empire committed to the ideals of democracy on a part-time basis is in decline. What are the symptoms of that? 
And what does this spell for the future of democracy? I think it's one of the great questions, and Ferenc is right to draw back, that the study of the rise, the crystallization of democratic ways of handling power and their decline, degradation, understanding those complex processes can't be done within a territorial state framework exclusively. And of course, all Europeans should know that because Europeanization is a process of trying to find democratic ways of power sharing across borders. John Keane, thank you so much for hopefully thinking with me today and taking the time. And I hope to publish you very soon again. Reika, thank you very much. It was my great pleasure, my honor, and I hope that our conversation develops long legs. I hope so too. Thank you. You've been listening to Gogarin, the Eurozine podcast with sociologist John Keane in the guest seat. This episode also comes with some bonus material available to our supporters. Please visit patreon.com slash Eurozine and help our work with as little as five euros a month or whatever you can afford. Please find his article and the corresponding focal point in Eurozine on the link in the show notes. Please subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review so more people can find us. You can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter so you'll always know what's worth thinking about. Gogarin, the Eurozine podcast, is produced by Elias Neuborga. The production is supported by the Zeitstiftung and I've been editor-in-chief, Reka Kinga Pop. And I hope you've enjoyed the program. <laughs>